was the night before Christmas, when all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care, in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. Welcome to the Halloween Horror-themed Christmas party. Uh, as always, I'm your host, Horror Guy Keenan, for the Everyday is Halloween podcast over at SpaceDragonCast.com. Uh, be sure to follow the show. You can check me out. I'm over on Facebook at the Everyday is Halloween podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Hallows Eve 365 You can follow me personally at Horror underscore Guy. Uh, but enough about those crazy links. Uh, let's talk about uh, what we got going on for the show. I know it's been quite a while, but I've been lining a lot of really fun and cool things up. If you guys are members of the Facebook page, you get tons of updates and news and stuff there. Uh, so, you know, uh, this, this episode will have a little bit of news, not as much as usual. Uh, but if you want to keep up to date on everything horror-wise, that's really interesting coming out. Uh, I know a lot of those websites can just put out everything, literally every tiny little bit of horror news out there, and it can kind of get muddled, so you miss out on the really good stuff that gets released. Uh, I try to capture that really good stuff. On this month's show, I have two very special gifts for you all to open up. Uh, the first is an interview with composer Douglas Pipes. You may recognize his music from such films as Trick or Treat, Krampus, Monster House, and The Babysitter, which is now on Netflix. Uh, next is an interview with Mac Bouvet. Uh, Mac is working on a kind of comedy horror uh, television series called Typecast, where monsters exist in the real world and are trying to get jobs in Hollywood. Uh, very interesting, very fun stuff. I cannot wait to share these interviews with you guys. Uh, but first, let's go back and listen to a little uh, music from Krampus. This is Carol of the Bells. Take me away, goes the Christmas past.
hope you all feel a little bit more cheery and a little bit more um, horny. They, Krampus has horns. All right. So uh, news, new news out of the Halloween camp. Uh, Jane McBride has talked a little bit about uh, you know where the film takes place. John Carpenter came out earlier and said it does away with all the sequels. It's not true. Uh, it, it's it's basically taking place as if uh, the first Halloween ended differently. Um, not really sure exactly what that means. Um, but, you know, Danny McBride still says it's going to be way more horror than and comedy and wants to just make fans happy. I mean, as do most directors, especially whenever their film hasn't even started rolling yet. Um, but, you know, fingers crossed. Uh, I was really sad to hear that Halloween 2 was taken out of this mix. I, th I really thought that Halloween 1 and Halloween 2 and then having a successor to take place off of that one instead of Halloween 4 uh, would have been really nice. But uh, yeah, I'm staying optimistic on this one, unlike the Dark Universe, which is gone, everybody. The Dark Universe over at Universal has been demolished. Uh, the guys that were heads on the Dark Universe have been sent home, and uh, looks like Johnny Depp and all those other actors are looking for more work. Uh, they, they say that the Dark Universe is just put, put on hold for right now, but I'm calling bullshit. I think Universal just wants to step away. They saw their losses they made during The Mummy, and that seems like a pretty good idea right now. Next up, we have the Are You Afraid of the Dark movie. Yes, the uh, Canadian television series that aired here in the States on Nickelodeon is getting a film adaptation. Does that mean we're going to get one of the stories told? Uh, from the series, or are we going to get our new like iteration? We don't really know just yet. Will the Midnight Society even play a role in this new Are You Afraid of the Dark? Or is it just going to be kind of like the um, Tales from the Dark Side film? Um, or maybe something like the Twilight Zone film, where it's three mini-movies in one. Either way, if you have members from the Midnight Society show up in these little mini-films, and maybe even just create a new Midnight Society, I think that would be possibly one of the best things this film could do it's paramount they work with nickelodeon uh i mean it's all under the paramount roof anyways so i also have pretty good hopes for this i just think it's really strange that they're making a are you afraid of the dark film compared to just making a new television series but when you get the head writer from it the new it to work on your are you afraid of the dark adaptation uh you do it hey where are my live tyler fans at if you're a fan of the strangers We'll get ready for The Strangers Prey at Night, which is releasing March 9th in theaters. Uh, also, Scream Factory is pushing out the Strangers Collector's Edition on Blu-ray, which comes out March 6th. Uh, this is one of those films that I felt stand alone pretty well, and I think it's a little odd to revisit this. Because you are home. Again. Uh, oh well, we'll see. Good news for fans who really hate the CW. I'm one of them. Uh, the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina is actually coming to Netflix. Uh, this is based off uh, Roberto Aguirre Sacasa's uh, comic book that came out from Archie Comics not too long ago. And it is by far one of the best comics I've read over the last couple years. And they just keep putting them out. They keep getting grayer. And it was going to go on to CW and be kind of like, uh, you know, Rafter Riverdale, uh, Sabrina, The Chilling Brunch of Sabrina. But the tone just does not fit well with Riverdale. I maybe seen one episode to give Riverdale a try. I was not a big fan. Uh, this is something entirely different. The series is described as being tonally in vain of the horror classics like Rosemary's Baby or The Exorcist. Uh, it'll see uh, Sabrina wrestling 
to reconcile her dual, like natures with half witch, half mortal, while standing against the evil forces that threaten her, her family, and the daylight world humans that inhabit it. Uh, so it, it's such a really cool dark story, and that I'm really happy to see it becoming a Netflix uh, exclusive. I mean, Netflix needs something right now because they're pretty. They're, they're struggling, you know, after, you know, Stranger Things is the best thing ever, but people kind of, you know, they get, you know, tired of things very quickly uh, with all the rape allegations uh, with uh, the lead star of House of Cards to uh, Marvel leaving and going to the Disney uh, streaming app services. Netflix is really hurting for content. So I'm really happy to see the Chilling Adventures of Sabrina go there. And maybe that also means that it can get a little bit darker, a little bit gorier and go to the right way that we really want a, uh, a totally perfect Sabrina to go to. Last but not least, Quentin Tarantino has been up to a lot lately. Uh, with the 50th anniversary of the Manson murders uh, coming up, uh, it looks like Variety just broke that uh, August 9th, uh, Sony will be putting out the Charles Manson story from uh, director Quentin Tarantino. Uh, that'll be in 2019. Um, it, but apparently it's not just about Charles Manson. Uh, it's more or less the family and the, the people around Manson. Uh, it's set in Los Angeles in the summer of 1969. Tarantino's upcoming movie, according to a source who read the script, focuses on a male TV actor who's had one hit series and is looking for a way to get into the film business. His sidekick, who is also his stunt double, is looking for the same thing. The horrific murder of Sharon Tate and four of her friends by Charles Manson's cult of followers uh, serves as a backdrop to the main story. Um, so, I, I, I mean, this is a good way for Quentin Tarantino to do a stylistic, you know, you know, 60s, 70s vibe uh, horror film with those kind of characters going on, but not really glorifying them as, you know, as like heroes or something. You know, there's been a lot of Manson films that come out and they go straight to DVD. Um, you know, so I think this is a, it's a safe uh, pick for him. Apparently, Margot Robbie is reported to being uh, playing as Sharon Tate. Uh, while names such as Tom Cruise, Leonardo DiCaprio, Brad Pitt, and Sam Jackson have also come up. This is all thanks to Bloody Disgusting for this news, along with Variety. Um, so yeah, very cool stuff coming out from that side of things. Now, the weird thing about Quentin Tarantino right now is that he's looking to do, uh, uh somewhat directing on the next Star Trek film from Paramount and J.J. Abrams. Uh, that, this news just broke last night that uh, Quentin Tarantino will be directing the next uh, Star Trek film. Now this will be the first time Tarantino has really dove into a series that has already been existing. Uh, I mean, he's all he's directed an episode of CSI and ER, but I don't really consider those to be like true, you know, works of art. You know, if he's jumping into something that exists like Star Wars, Star Wars, Star Trek, he really has to, you know. You know, abide by the studio's, uh, you know, wishes, and that's not Tarantino's thing. He's an auteur of editing and, and likes his his own vision put on film. So, you know, this could definitely butt heads, but at the same time, if you really think about it, think about the original Star Trek. Think about that art and aesthetic that came with that show. If we dove back and brought those, you know, those bright colors and the, you know, the beehive hairdos and, you know, like that the subtle cheesiness to those that series into a Tarantino, you know, like the fonts written at the bottom and everything like that, Star Trek, and I don't know, I think it'd be really freaking cool, but I don't see how people, the common audience goer would really enjoy this, especially after uh, Too Fast, Too Furious Star Trek came out uh, 
what a year ago like it's, it's one of those things where it's like star trek's already going in one way and it would really be odd to see tarantino come in and do his version because then somebody else would have to follow up his thing i don't know apparently paramount really wants to push the star trek thing and, and tarantino's there for it now i know it's a horror podcast and may, who knows maybe tarantino will bring some violence into star trek wouldn't that be amazing <laughs> anyways that's all for your news guys thank you for listening uh and and jumping in if there's any news you'd like me to talk about if you have a project that's coming up please reach out to me at horror-guy at live.com now let's get into our interview with composer douglas pipes how's it going doug oh it's great how are you I'm happy fantastic yes how have you uh, been spending your fall season uh yeah well working uh i actually just finished up doing a a silent film for the Dallas Chamber Symphony, which was a great deal of fun. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, it was the second one I had done for them. I did a, they do a silent film series. Uh, mm-hmm. They do a, two a year, and I did one in uh, 2014, Alfred Hitchcock's The Lodger. Oh, very cool. Yeah, and then they uh, had a, a situation where they kind of needed a, a composer to fill in last minute, and I picked up and and did the Buster Keaton film, The General, and we nice. had the concert uh, in mid October, and it was pretty great. And Very cool. <clears throat> unfortunately, that kept me sort of from being able to head out to Orlando, where it sounds like you are. Uh-huh. And I I missed the trick or treat zone, scare zone at at Halloween uh, Horror Nights. Oh, uh, I'm so sad. I missed that. Yeah, I mean, your score was blasting throughout the park for like an entire two months. <laughs> yeah, so I wish I could have gone, but I didn't. So um, yeah, I, but I've got to experience some YouTube videos. So it's pretty fun. Very cool. So now I'm curious. Uh, you know, are you attracted to horror, or is horror attracted to you? <laughs> <laughs> um, the accidental horror composer. Yeah, uh, I, was it an, by accident? Well, no, I think it's just the way the the nature of the business is once you start doing something in a specific genre, then people are more comfortable to hire you within that genre, and that mm-hmm. sort of becomes its own thing. What's funny is I don't consider myself a horror composer at all because mm-hmm. I don't see any of the scores that I've done as strictly horror scores. There's so much other um, film scoring s- style uh, to those scores. So, um, I've always been a fan of horror films. Uh, and I, and some of my favorite film scores are horror, horror films. Well, Mm -hmm. I take that back. One of my all time favorite scores is the, is Jerry Goldsmith's score to Poltergeist. Oh yes. Beautiful. I don't necessarily consider that a horror score, although it has horror, horrific elements. It's kind of a fantasy score to me. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it has more of like a whimsical feel to it, which I noticed that you bring a lot to your films as well, um, or the films that you work on. Uh, for instance, you know, one of my big, my favorite films uh, over the last like two decades, and I know this is very weird to say for a lot of people, but Monster House, I thought was so much fun. Um, and I thought you did such a great job on that. It was one of those things where uh, I was really excited about Mike Dottery's Trick or Treat uh, in the development phase of things. So when I heard that you got put on to do the score of it, I was like, that's honestly like the perfect pick. I couldn't imagine somebody else better to score that movie than the guy that did Monster House. Thank you. Yeah, Monster House was a a great deal of fun. And yeah, doing an an, an animated horror movie with, Mm -hmm. you know, teenage protagonists that lends itself to 
to having, you know, the sort of the contrast between the scary and the whimsy and, mm-hmm. um, yeah, there's a, and even some of the fantasy and action adventure in that. That was a, a great deal of fun to work on. And Michael had seen that uh-huh. and that's how I got trick or treat is he had seen that. And, um, some people did some, some really nice, uh, reviews on the monster house score and that kind of elevated, I think my, uh, at least people sort of getting a, a chance to hear about me. So I was very appreciative of, of all that. Yeah. So how did you kind of come into uh, to play with Amblin Films and, and Gil Keenan's project with Monster House? So I, um, if you kind of go backwards, I was, I started playing music in a band and I was approached to score a film quite some time ago and a small indie film. And I, did it and I did a couple of them and I really enjoyed it, but I didn't think I had uh, the skill set to accomplish a film score like my film scoring heroes. Uh-huh. So I quit and I went to school and studied uh, basically music composition and orchestration, not film scoring, but classical orchestral music composition and orchestration because I wanted to um, really get into the heart of being a composer. And then while I was in the middle of my studies, I started taking on student films and I met Gil Kennan at UCLA and I scored his student films and his final film was a a animation live action hybrid film that he made and and we uh, got to use like a local chamber orchestra, just kind of do a one take read through of the score and cut it into the film. And that film got passed around and got the attention of Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis, and they put him on to do Monster House at Sony. And he did the crazy, unthinkable thing and tell them that he wants his composer to be the composer. And yeah. that that required quite a bit of faith in everyone, but I was given the opportunity to mock up the score with sampled orchestra and present it in in phases and all the way through the making of the film and they tested it and everyone came on board and felt that it it worked and so we got to proceed and i got to um go ahead and record it with a 85 piece full orchestra that's crazy what was i'm sure that was your first time Uh, yeah it was my first time doing a feature length film Uh uh sorry of orchestral score Mm -hmm. uh and first time, you know, and it, and it was a big budget film. You know, everything else I had done was just kind of done with uh, on very, very small budgets with just a handful of instruments and kind of done in my own studio. So it was exhilarating and exciting. Um, and, yeah, I, you know, I'm fortunate enough to have a great team uh, working. You know, when you work on a film of that size, uh, you have – there are I work with a great orchestrator John Cole and mm-hmm. all the copyists and everyone that that puts to puts the score together on the recording and technical you know I was used to recording and putting it all on paper myself and doing every every single aspect of every bit of it myself uh-huh. well that that doesn't happen in a you know in a big film like this so it was really really exciting very cool. That, that's so that's so cool to hear. I just recently had Kevin Bergeron on from Waxwork Records. Yeah, he's great. And he says nothing but great things about you. And I got the uh, review of the last um, House of Waxwork 
comic that came out that had your work on it, which congratulations, oh, no. very awesome job. Um, so what, what did that play? Like, how did you meet those guys and kind of get into that? Uh, so they, they, um, released trick or treat mm -hmm. and worked with them, you know, worked with Kevin on that. And that was unbelievably fantastic to have a score released on vinyl. I was so excited. It's beautiful, isn't it? And then, oh yeah, the, it's all, it's so good. And they did, yeah, Francisco's artwork is so good mm -hmm. and just sounds great. Yeah, you, I mean, there's like. So, I mean, no offense to Trick or Treat or anything, but there are such bigger movies that never get that kind of treatment on a, on the soundtrack ever, you know? And then, like, you know, something like this, like, little indie horror film, like, Trick or Treat gets out there, and it's, like, this beautiful gatefold and, the, like, the beautiful pictures on, like, the, the you know, the record itself. Like, it's great. And, you know, I've, I kind of poked the bear a bit. I was like, is, is Monster House ever coming out? And he's like, ah, yeah, we're, we're waiting. Just got to get all everything finalized, so. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would love for that to happen. Yeah, they, I... It, I can't say how just watching that process unfold with Waxwork, it was so clear because there were some other labels that had approached um, regarding releasing Trigger Treat on vinyl, but Waxwork, it, this was something that was very dear. They take everything so much to heart. They are music fans, horror fans, film scoring fans, all of it. And knowing that they were doing it, it was in such perfect hands that uh you know they came when they came up or when krampus came out they did it and mm. i would love for them to release Mon monster house yeah, yeah definitely in fact even you know i even kind of threw it out there if we could get some traction on the babysitter score to get uh to get a uh, release on that wow. but that might be a little tricky just because netflix doesn't necessarily release all their stuff right so. yeah and you know it's funny because uh the whenever stranger things came out it was like a sleeper hit and people were like we love that soundtrack so much that so i think people came right. to them and was like we want a soundtrack so i think like they had to find like a, or a record company had to come out of nowhere because i think it, i forget what company released that soundtrack but it was like it took a while for that one to come out on vinyl um yeah. So I wonder if they would do the same thing. Like maybe if Netflix has a good relationship with that company, maybe they would put the babysitter out, you know? Yeah. Well, I know that um, we've, we've, we've approached and tried to throw it out there. Cause I, cause I talked to Kevin mm -hmm. about it and, and you know uh, it would be great if they did, but I think, I think there's, I think it comes down to um, whether or not they feel there's uh, either a market for it or, probably even more at play here is just they have so many things going mm -hmm. on that doesn't register on their radar. Yeah. Enough. So, <laughs> so gotcha. understand, understand. Very me. cool. And so like I talked to Kevin about like the, the recording process for, uh, for the, the, the house of waxwork, uh, records. And he told me that you guys did another thing where you got like a big, like live, you know, uh, you know, just piece bands together and everything and like to make music and you guys kind of got to have a little fun with it and kind of make up things here and there. And how, what was that process like for you? Uh, so <clears throat> a couple things. He, he, they wrote a really great theme, uh, the House of Waxworks mm -hmm. theme. And uh, I had heard it and they had it in such a way where I offered to like work with them just to help them get it recorded with a string orchestra because they wrote all the music. I just helped get it sort of orchestrated on score paper and facilitate the recording mm -hmm. process. Um, and then I composed a piece 
And in that situation, I had just moved and was building out, I um, was at the process of building out my new studio, which has been built now, but I was in, in the process of kind of in between having my studio set up and he had called and said, hey, we're doing this thing. Do you want to be involved? And of course I wanted to be involved. I'm like, uh, <laughs> my studio's in my living room of my new yeah. house, not put together and not in any kind of like good place. But I, uh, I just set it up in my living room and worked on something for a, a, a couple days or a week, something like that, and, and was able to get something to him because I didn't want it, the opportunity to pass me yeah, by. Yeah, no, definitely. And now it seems like you know, they have Volume 2 coming out. Um, and I'm guessing you know if it's popular enough, they'll just keep doing them. Uh, have you been involved with anything past 2? or? Uh, no, just 1 and 2 okay. so far. Very cool. That's awesome. So last night, I got a chance to actually sit down and watch The Babysitter. Uh, and man, what a trip that movie is. <laughs> Mick G, he was, I, that guy, like he's on a different playing level with uh, with making movies. Did you actually get to work with him, scoring this? Yeah, so, yeah, so um, this is this is a super long story, and I know you have a song, I'm going to say it no, really quickly. Back in uh, 2014, I was in New York City hanging out with a dear friend of mine, Mark Borden, and he is a writer, and he had, we had, like just I was working on with a, a rock band called the Airborne Toxic Event. I had done some orchestrations of their songs and they they would perform with orchestras and I did the arrangement of, of their songs for the mm-hmm. orchestra. And we would do concerts with the Louisville Symphony and the Colorado Symphony and they were in Central Park doing a concert and I spent the day with my friend Mark and we went out for drinks that night and he told me this incredibly fun story about how he uh, did a piece on McGee. And he hung out with them and how McGee was so great and had this great time. That was 2014. Okay. Fast forward to spring 2017, I get a, a call from my agent saying, hey, there's this horror comedy um, and we want to submit you for it. It's a McGee film. Cool. So submit for that. I text my friend out in New York and I you know, I think he put in a text too to McGee and said, hey, I hear you got a movie. Um, you know, my, my friend is up for it, just mm-hmm. FYI. And then that led to a call with the producers and the music supervisor, um, and they it all seemed great, and they kind of decided they wanted to have me have a conversation with McGee. Uh, but first, before I had a conversation with McGee, they sent me a cut of the film to watch, and it was so intense, and you know, I hadn't seen a trailer. I knew nothing about it, obviously. There wasn't a trailer at that point, but I knew nothing about it, and I watched this sweet little coming of age story and then all of a sudden yeah oh. like that whole that that scene i'm not gonna spoil it for anybody but that scene happens it just flips that movie on its head yeah and that, i'm i continued to watch the movie but i was that i was in mm-hmm. at that point you know, they, they were gonna have to take it away That's from awesome. me there so did you so okay did yeah. you get to pick the actual licensed music that was in it or was that already kind of like his idea no yeah he's so he's super musical knowledgeable and into it and like his intensity and energy around all Uh things music it's really really great and it's infectious and it's super inspiring so he had he did all the you know the songs are very important to him but all the music was Mm -hmm. important to him so we had two music meetings here where i would compose uh, the score, and I worked with a very brilliant uh, collaborator. His name is John Clement Wood, and <clears throat> some of the pieces where 
they may have had sort of like a, a little song cut in, but they weren't going to go for the song there. John and I worked on those. Some of them he worked on just mm-hmm. on his own. Um, we did some of those tracks, uh, you know, kind of in the vein of of the retro style that they were, um, you know, basically yeah. going for. And then uh, as far as the score goes, just compose the score. And McGee came here with the producers and uh, the music, music supervisor, and we went through things and we would take notes and, you know, just kind of go through what all his notes on the score, but they, but the sessions were amazing and we would get in some really, really intense music conversations just about all the possibilities of different things that we could do here and there. And I, yeah, it was, it was every much as fun as watching the movie. Just that's great. Yeah. See that, I feel like that would alone would make like a really great vinyl, just like the little story behind that and just how much, you know, love labor Mick G has for like the music part of the, an aspect of things you know with you yeah i it was such a fun film to work yeah on. It, yeah it was nuts like i was just like wow all right that like i did not see half that coming until it happened so <laughs> yeah so my advice is if you haven't seen it don't watch the no, trailer right yeah um watch the movie Krampus. I love that soundtrack. You know, I play it during Christmas, and and my girlfriend would always get mad at me because <laughs> <Wait, laughs> it has like the darker mad? tones this is, of, of Christmas music. It's the perfect uh, sort What's of that? counter programming to, you know, you hear all the the Christmas music that you're used to hearing when you go out shopping. Else, this is the perfect palate cleanser for that. After trick or treat, this was what Mike was working on next. This this script, and he had sent me the script fairly early on. Uh, before it got greenlit or anything like that. So I kind of had it in my head, and we had talked about making a score based on mutating Christmas themes and, and such. And so that was always the impetus of it. And um, when it came time to do it, uh, yeah, it just was how do you make a horror score for a movie that still has heart, that has – the thing that he wanted the most was that – Every given moment, it feels like a Christmas score. It never – you couldn't take the music out of the picture and not think that it was it had some kind of Christmas spice to it. So the idea is that, that throughout the score, even as it gets horrific or through every moment of it – excuse me, either through thematic um, mutations or fragments of Christmas melodies – to the use of Christmas instrumentation and bells and jingle bells and all stuff, it always has Christmas mm-hmm. in the score. Um, yeah, and then obviously the the Krampus character is a you know a larger than life monster. So creating a theme for uh, for Krampus, which is Definitely. sort of like the original idea of that. I just wrote a theme on a basically on a fiddle to give it a, you know, a sort of a Eastern European Mm -hmm. mythology sound to it that never really got used in that iteration in in the film, but uh, it kind of has its roots in folk melody writing. Uh, Right now I'm, uh, Mm -hmm. I have my hat in the ring on a few things and I'm also working on, I have a, a musical that I'm sketching uh, on my own. Oh, that's interesting. That, and I'm doing some some actual writing, writing, not music writing, writing, writing. I'm not sure oh. what the what the final take is, whether it's a, a feature or a graphic novel or, um, yeah. 
I'm, I'm still mm-hmm. kind of putting together the, the basic uh, point where I've almost sketched out the entire story, and then I'll go back and continue to work on that. You can grab both Trick or Treat and the Krampus vinyl albums right now at waxworkrecords.com. Now, without further ado, here's my interview with Mac Bouvet. Mac Bouvet, how are you doing? I am doing. Uh, I'm doing okay. I'm uh, not sleeping these days because Kickstarter is a full time job. Is it really? <laughs> I can only imagine trying to start up one of those things. You have to be like attached to it twenty four seven, right? I never ever want to do it again. Oh, ever really? It, it's like but what it about is the success stories. Job. Huh? People have had success stories. They're like, man, I would use Kickstarter over and over and just make more of my projects. You're just one and done with this one. Uh, those people have, they should be seeking professional help because it is, <laughs> it is hard. It is so much work. It's, it's a constant job, mm-hmm. but, God, um, God. but hopefully worth it in the end. That's, that's really the end goal of it is to make your dream projects happen. Yeah. And everybody else's dream projects. Cause if they want to back it, you know, they definitely want to see it. Um, let's talk a bit about typecast. Uh, this is a new, uh, web series, right? Yeah, so Typecast is a web series. Uh, it centers around three actors in Hollywood that are, they're working actors, but they're kind of getting pigeonholed into the same roles over and over again, mostly mm-hmm. horror films and sci-fi, um, because they're literally monsters. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So <laughs> monsters living of, in the real world. Yeah, so imagine that every piece of horror media you ever watched featured uh anytime you saw a monster that that was actually a monster performer not a guy in makeup but actually a legit monster that was hired for that role Mm -hmm. so our kind of elevator pitch as it were is it's like being human meets extras perfect (laughs) i love that interesting (laughs) very interesting well tell me a little bit about your horror background Uh, what what got you really into horror movies oh gosh uh my mom my mom was a big horror fan, so I grew up with uh, somebody in the household that wanted to share with me her love of all the Universal monsters and uh, uh, mostly earlier stuff. Like I, I started with her mostly silent up through, I would say more like the 60s and 70s mm-hmm. uh, by way of what she liked. But I, I've always had a love affair with things that were spooky. I used to go and I would steal any of her books that she had that had creepy stories in them and read those. If I was at school at the library there, I wanted anything that was creepy. Um, in fact, I did a homage to one of my favorite stories from childhood recently. Cause I did a, a mock 1950s, uh, educational film mm-hmm. called like can be and you. Oh, <laughs> and nice. Yeah, which is on YouTube right now. And my fake production company for that was Green Ribbon Educational Films, which is a reference to the Green Ribbon story that I, absolutely captivated me as a child. Are, are you familiar with that one? I am not, no. What are they about? Uh, so, the, Well, the Green Ribbon is a specific story, and there's been some other variations where it's a different color ribbon or an, a choker but it's basically the story of this boy who falls in love with a girl and she's always wearing a green ribbon around her neck. Mm-hmm. And she says, you know, can't take it off. They, they get married and always she has this green ribbon around her neck. And that's the one thing that's taboo. He's never allowed to touch the green ribbon. She cannot take it off. Okay. And she's okay. on her deathbed 
with her husband and she's like, oh, okay, well, you can finally take off the green ribbon. It's time for you to know my secret. And he takes it off and her head falls off. Oh, I think I have heard of that story now that you say that. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah it's like uh, kind of like the the stories you uh, to tell in the dark or, you know, the stories if you want to scare yourself. It's from right. one of those compilations. Mm-hmm. And that always stuck with me. But yeah. I just absorbed horror media from a very early age. I wanted to play monsters and, you know, have creepy stuff. It's just, uh, it's a part of sort of what makes me me, I guess. Mm, <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because it's just, uh, there are a lot of women that are interested in horror, but for some reason it's still viewed as a boys club. So a lot of times Mm -hmm. people don't expect that I'm into horror. Uh, I met Forrest J. Ackerman um, many years ago before he he passed away. And Mm -hmm. that was one of the first questions he asked me was, you know, okay, I get what these guys are doing here. Why are you here? You know, what's your interest in this? Right. Yeah. (laughs) It's like girls can like horror too. Yeah. And I mean, I remember staying up really late with my mom watching uh, Turner Classic Movies with uh, all the Lon Chaney silent film. <clears throat> excuse me. All the Lon Chaney silent films. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the Universal Monsters are really still my, that's the cornerstone of my infatuation with horror is Dracula and Wolfman and Frankenstein, Creature from the Black Lagoon. All of those Definitely, yeah. are yeah. my deepest loves. <laughs> That's awesome. So they, it all started from the beginning, and your family's always been very supportive of the horror outlook? Well, my mom has, and and she was until she passed away a few years ago. Um, oh, unfortunately, it's, it's just how it goes sometimes, mm-hmm. and uh, I really wish she was around to see everything I'm working on now, because I think she'd be really excited about it, especially the web series. My mom was my biggest cheerleader. Mm-hmm. Uh I think my dad just knows it's a thing that I love <laughs> and not anything is really going to change that. I think it's more a yeah. matter of acceptance at this point that uh, his daughter is weird and uh, has been weird for the past 33 years and will probably continue to be weird for however many more there are. Yeah, definitely not changing <laughs> at all. <laughs> yeah, this, really cool. this is really not cool. a phase. right yeah this phase has lasted quite a while (laughs) it will be a hell of a phase (laughs) right oh man all right well let's jump back back into a typecast um yeah so what what was your focus like what made you want to focus on a werewolf tale well it's funny it's actually centered around three key actors we just happened to shoot something featuring my character for our proof of concept okay because we wanted to do something that was in world that would kind of give everyone a flavor of what we were aiming for without trying to badly shoot the first episode or something because mm-hmm. um, one of the hardest parts for us is our um, one of our leads is a zombie which doing a makeup application for that and doing it at a decent amount out of pocket cost is not too difficult yeah but our other lead Tony is, a theatrically trained, like Shakespearean mastery level actor who happens to be a bog monster. Lovely. Like all a swamp thing. So he wants to be treading the boards of Broadway and doing dramas, 
but mostly he chases scanty, scantily clad women down sci-fi corridors or is the monster of the week on Doctor Who. Okay. Um, but that's very hard to do that kind of makeup at an out-of-pocket cost that we could cover. Mm-hmm. So we decided to go ahead and do something with my character, Abby, uh, who only gets to work three nights a month as she is a werewolf. And mm-hmm. her thing is um, she'd actually been a former child star and kind of went through the ranks of stuff and was having a career on the rise. She got cast in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban as the transformed Remus Lupin. Mm -hmm. But when they found out she wasn't British, she got kicked off set. So she picked up this gig as the serial mascot for Full Moon Flakes. And that's sort of been, she's basically getting steady work, but it's not satisfying for her. It's a career slump. Mm -hmm. And also our mythology is very much like, um, how it is with animals that are cast in film and television. They usually mm-hmm. cast female animals, so you don't have to deal with the whole junk issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so most of the time, if she's not a werewolf, people, you know, not like fully like fangs and fur, yeah. no one knows. Like she can kind of pass for uh, a human, even if she doesn't consider herself such. But most people think that this serial mascot Mooney the werewolf is actually a guy. There's still an assumption that werewolves in Hollywood are dudes, even though they're oh, mostly man. women. <laughs> <laughs> That's perfect. I love that. Yeah, I mean, we have a fully built out world for this. This isn't just us going, oh, hey, wouldn't it be funny if we had a show with some monsters? This mm-hmm. is, they're people first, monsters second. So we really tried to build out a world mythology that felt realistic and true to this industry and has commentary on the industry without being that kind of commentary where it just beats you over the head with it right it's like a subtle like just it's peppered on yeah it's it's a part of it but we really wanted to treat these characters like like people first you know Mm -hmm. with actual drives and motivations it's the monster is the secondary characteristic for them gotcha okay and just I like that you guys keep that, just that, that the realism of Hollywood, like how they would treat an undead character, you know, as just like, you know, oh, you're just, you know, you're that Walking Dead extra over and over, you know, we just need you for this commercial real quick. And... <laughs> exactly. Well, and in our world, they actually aren't really making zombie movies anymore because it's Zombie Station and there was the mm-hmm. Undead Rights Movement and it's, uh, it's very uncouth to make zombie films. So our zombie, uh, he's he basically plays a lot of cadavers in crime procedurals. Mm-hmm. That's but great. he's actually very content with with his uh, career and where that's at because you know it's there there are also actors in Hollywood that are very satisfied with the work they get mm-hmm. and Tony and Abby are not and that's uh, we've got a very interesting dynamic between our three leads which I think is a lot of fun. It's one of those friendships where. You have that one key member of a friendship that is the reason that the other two people are around that mm-hmm. wouldn't be friends with each other in another circumstance. Gotcha, yeah. As you do, you know. <laughs> yeah. But I think it gives it a different dynamic. I mean, we're really proud of everything that we've written, and we're just really hoping that we can make the the eight episodes for our first season and really share this with everyone because we get such a kick out of it, and everyone that's been involved has believed in this so much mm-hmm. that they offered us time and talents and 
I mean, even shooting that proof of concept, that was a weekend's worth of work and people came and did it because they were so excited about this project. Mm-hmm. With filming, you sometimes have to do a little guerrilla filming. So we went and filmed out in the woods <laughs> and had to keep an eye out for park rangers and <laughs> oh, we set it up to look like a kid's birthday party. <laughs> <laughs> But I was maybe a little bit of a giveaway if someone was going to come down. And so we had walkies. And if a ranger was coming, the code was the strippers are here. Nice. Good call. For, you know, whenever <laughs> the family's around for a kid's birthday party. Precisely. <laughs> we only had one code. The strippers are here. But mm-hmm. man, I took off like a shot. I was just I was in the woods gone. And I'm just like, am I either going to get shot by somebody who thinks they're they're going to bag some monster out in the woods or right. I'm going to be the next Patterson Gimlin, you know, Bigfoot film. <laughs> That's perfect. <laughs> like, I mean, you know, part of that was a, a dream in the back of your head. You just be out in the middle of the woods by yourself in that makeup, like, you know, prosthetics and costume. It was pretty phenomenal. And it was funny because we were filming. Uh, there weren't, it wasn't a lot of foot traffic, but there were occasionally people that walked by. Mm-hmm. And we'd be filming and they'd just look at me like, what the hell is going on here? And I just kind of smile and wave at them right that's california baby (laughs) (laughs) yeah like you do right exactly (laughs) have you seen a freak out on set like the one in in your kickstarter page many a moon ago i was working on licensing for terminator salvation okay cool (laughs) and the day that (laughs) christian bale had his epic level meltdown screaming Uh at the light guy uh was a very interesting day in the office because it came into this news everywhere about it. And mm-hmm. that was that was sort of my inspiration was just just going absolutely berserk. I've heard stories about people in Hollywood that have had meltdowns. Um, it was also a really rough day of shooting for me because my contact had ripped. I could breathe through one nostril that day. Uh-huh. You know, my chest is bound. Uh, we had... Um, a uh, kid that w- was being fussy about eating chocolate cereals, only kid I know that didn't want to eat chocolate cereal. Right. And I had a migraine. Oh, no. <laughs> so <laughs> it's just a little bit of you in there. Of everything that was going on that day. And we did two takes that went okay. They were, they were not bad. But on the mm-hmm. third take, the director said, hey, do you want to destroy the prop? You know, why, why don't we just go ahead and if you want go nuts with the cereal box. Yeah, be a werewolf to it. (laughs) Yeah, and I did, and it just amped it up even more. And I remember during that take, moving around the room, and I could feel the anxiety levels in the room rising. Mm -hmm. All of the the quiet moments where the director's saying, you know, know, cut it here. That Mm -hmm. that silence was legit. People were very uncomfortable after that take. The little girl had been smiling the first two takes. Uh-huh. And uh-huh. right before the third take, she's like, do you think you could be quieter? It's It seems really real. And I'm like, I'm sorry, honey. I, I got to do this. This is part of it. Right. And you can see her face in the background of, of those shots. And she's just slack-jawed. And it's <laughs> the only take we got where she looked genuinely upset because the other two she she was in the background just smiling and yeah I, I came back downstairs and everybody was still really quiet the first two takes people have been laughing but the third one for some reason was just really real mm-hmm. yeah it's like you need some of these actors to respond in the way that you need to for this like you just give it your all and make them all very uncomfortable <laughs> 
Yeah, and, and pretty much everything that we used is from that third take. And um, our uh, actually, uh, Chris Dorman, who's playing our third lead, uh, Leroy the zombie, was there in a human role. And he's the one that took the cell phone footage, which was his own idea. And that was so funny and so you know, up in his grill when I was uh, went over, stomped, and yelled at him mm-hmm. that we decided to cut that in, too. Yeah, no, I thought that was a great addition. That was super funny because that's exactly what happened. Someone busts out their phone immediately on set when that happens. Yeah, it was just it was such a great environment. And uh, our director, Justin Zagri, who's actually the director in the video and uh, the director for the series, had a great last minute idea of like, hey, we should establish that there's other monsters working here. Let's get somebody in a quick makeup. And Michael Spatola was a great sport and did a quick zombie makeup out of the kit. for the uh, script supervisor to wear <laughs> and she was really excited about being in makeup <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome well very cool before i let you go uh let me ask you what what is some of your favorite horror films like what are the ones that you go back to immediately and you're like i can watch this a million times no problem okay this uh, this list could be 10 million miles long so uh yeah i totally understand yeah, to, let's see well my favorite movie of all time is the 1941 wolfman of course uh, i watched that 10 bazillion million times. I'm a big fan of uh, American Werewolf in London, obviously. Mm-hmm. I could watch The Thing over and over again. Um, they Live springs to mind. Uh, I mean, really, any of the old universal horror films I've seen uh, an embarrassing amount of time. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> yeah, they're they're fantastic. I mean, the thing is just like one of those like comfort food movies, you know, for some odd reason with you know horror fans. <laughs> it's one of those things where I I take great comfort in a lot of those movies now. If I'm really stressed out, I actually will put on like American Werewolf in London, and I've fallen to that asleep to that movie countless times because I've seen it so many times that mm-hmm. he can be tearing someone apart, and I'm like, oh, I can sleep now. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's exactly <laughs> it's really what I comforting. needed. That is awesome. So, I mean, yeah, you I attract yourself to, to werewolf films then. I could definitely t- tell. Do you like, uh, do you prefer American Werewolf over The Howling? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I get asked that a lot. And when people tell me Howling is the superior movie, I can't be friends with them. Yeah, uh, same. <laughs> you know, there there's some good things going for The Howling. But I feel story-wise, uh, emotionality by way of connecting to the characters, the way that the effects are done... It just, it doesn't hold up as well for me. I think the thing I appreciate the most about The Howling is that since it really was trying to pioneer these werewolf effects, they had a few different things that they tried, and there's snippets of what they tried still in that movie. They left some remnants of their what they went with first, which I really appreciate, like the fact that there is an animated uh, sequence where it's actually the like hand painted silhouettes of them transforming in front of the fire, mm-hmm. and there's still a quick shot of the stop motion werewolves towards the end as well. Oh yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think that's really fascinating that they kept little snippets of of that in there rather than just going, well, this didn't work, so just scrap it. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Just still put it in there regardless, because I mean the time and like this the look of it kind of. Like, gives that movie like its own staple you know yeah and it's hard because i'm i'm obviously a huge werewolf fan i love all monsters and and horror genre across the board but Mm -hmm. 
there really aren't a lot of very good werewolf movies out there. I have seen a gross amount of them, but there's only a handful that I ever actually recommend to people. Oh, what about Wes Craven's Cursed? You know what? I actually think that movie is a lot of fun. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of people hate that movie, but I think if you watch it as a comedy, mm-hmm. it's pretty fun. The The hardest part about that is it came out on the heels of Scream, and so they That's revised right. the ending to be more in line with Scream because Scream was such a runaway hit, and it just it ruins the end of that movie because they're like, well, what if the boyfriend was the, the, the and it's like, oh, right. guys, like you already had your twist. You already pulled it off. But that was totally on the studio that made that call. And the movie is weaker for it. Which is funny. I, I think, think that's Miramax and Weinstein. Stuff. Yeah. It's yeah, a lot of fun it, stuff. There's a werewolf that flips people off in it. Like, I, I know. There's, I, I physically can't hate that movie now. Right. And Christina Ricci. Like, I mean, that's a double whammy. Yeah. Well, it's cute, and I, I like the, the relationship of her brother with the other dude that keeps beating him up, and then they end up being, like, pals, and the guy ends up being, like, kind of weirdly sensitive about stuff. I'm just like, right. it, it's a charming film, and I, I like it better than a lot of the crappy werewolf movies I have seen. Mm-hmm. Oh, definitely. <laughs> I completely agree. But you're right. It's a very rare thing to get a really good one. Like, Dog Soldiers is just one of those, like, you know, lightning in a bottle, you know? Dog Soldiers is solid. Um, more recently, there haven't been a lot of great werewolf films, but there were two in the recent past that I, I keep recommending. Late Phases, mm-hmm. which is delightful and takes place at a retirement community. Oh, what? <laughs> it's, it's super fun. And there was a British one called Howl, not to be confused with. There's a few movies called Howl, but this one... Uh, is specifically a werewolf film, and it takes place on a train, like a oh, bullet train. Okay. And it's really fun. I really, really enjoyed it. Interesting. Yeah, I'll definitely have to check those two out. That sounds awesome. We'll keep definitely pushing it here on Every Day is Halloween. Um, I appreciate it. Yeah, and just can't, I would love to have you go back on and kind of give us updates on how it's going. Uh, yeah, definitely. Where can, uh, where, where can they go to check out the Kickstarter? So the easiest thing is to go to um, probably the bit.ly URL, and that's bit.ly slash typecast TV. And that'll take them to the Kickstarter, and they'll be able to look at all of that. We're also on social media where they can follow us on Instagram as uh, typecast TV, and on Facebook and Twitter, it's typecast series. They can also find me online and uh, track me down pretty much everywhere as at strange like that. And I'm happy to give them directions on how to get to that. And I'm also posting a lot of updates about the project and also what I'm up to because I've always got my my hands in a lot of pies. Yeah, That's you're a busy. Thing, I mean, right? Is that a thing? If you're doing, yeah, I think, oh, yeah, having your hands in a lot of pies, that, that could, you know, or if you, uh, if they have, you know, the, the pentagram on your hand as well <laughs> in the pies and you have your demonic werewolf pie. It's like, kind of works. Well, I yeah. saw the pentagram in the pies, which means they're my next victim, which means I have to eat them. That, I feel like that's an excuse to eat pies. <laughs> I don't see the problem here. <laughs> Well, Mac, you sound like a busy girl, and I can't wait to see more uh, from you. And you guys, if you guys just go to the Kickstarter page and check out the the first little mini-sode on there, uh, it's a lot of fun. I had a great time talking with you, and uh, yeah, I just do great. I, I think you're you're bound to do great things with this. <laughs> Thanks so much. I, I really hope so. This is this is a project I have been working on for the past half a decade, and I 
I am so, so proud of it that, and I just, I want to see it made and I know other people would enjoy it as well. I'd like to thank Mac and Douglas for both coming on the show. I really love it whenever uh, horror artists come on and just share their love with the masses. And, you know, that, that's what this show is all about. It's, it's bringing, you know, the horror fans together and, and sharing what we love most about the genre. Um, if you guys can, as always, be sure to drop a comment on iTunes as well as Google Play about the show, letting them know how much you enjoy it. I'd really appreciate that. Make sure to follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the everyday is Halloween podcast is everywhere um as always if you also like to uh jump into horror video games i stream horror uh nightly that's over at uh, twitch.tv backslash horror underscore guy thank you guys for tuning in and i'll see you all in 2018 stay scary Christmas Eve is the scariest 